This is Frank Dominguez for the WDAV Piedmont Arts Podcast. This season, the Western Piedmont Symphony is searching for a new music director to take over from longtime conductor John Gordon Ross. Several artists will vie for the role by leading concerts with the orchestra. And next is Bruce Anthony Kiesling. He conducts a program February 2nd at 7.30 p.m. in P.E. Monroe Auditorium at Lenore Rhine University. And he joins me now to talk about the concert and his candidacy. Welcome, Bruce. Thank you. Nice to be here. First, tell me about the program you're conducting. What makes it live up to the title, Shades of Red? Well, you know, we, we had a little bit of back and forth about the title of the program because it, it really has kind of two parts to it, really. Uh, and the first part, uh, I think, really has an American flair to it. The first half of the program features music by Leonard Bernstein and uh, George Gershwin. So two sort of American geniuses, really. And for me, I think two of the great uh, American musicians of the 20th century. And I love... Gershwin, I've been very attracted to his music, and I love that Bernstein grew up just kind of a half a generation later. So we we see someone who who grew up knowing uh, Gershwin's music, and he played Rhapsody in Blue several times from the piano. There are a couple of recordings that uh, Leonard Bernstein made with uh, with himself as pianist of, of the Gershwin. So we know that he was influenced by that. And Gershwin, of course, we have on this other side this composer who who was really the first person I think that truly American composer in the sense that he kind of brought together this melting pot that we all learn about in school culturally, and he brought that together musically. So we have someone who grew up in popular music on Tin Pan Alley in New York City as a song plugger and eventually a composer and then into Broadway, then into Hollywood, certainly uh, later on, but also concert works. And so I, I love sort of Gershwin's story there. And then, of course, he influenced Bernstein, who who managed to do something similar, who was in so many ways, I think, a musical chameleon. But he was taken seriously by uh, classical music, long hairs at the time they were known as, uh, but also sort of had this other foot in classical music. And certainly uh, Leonard Bernstein's, uh, his mentor, Kusevitsky, the music director, longtime music director of the Boston Symphony, Kusevitsky was very negative about Bernstein's uh, involvement in Broadway and thought that was going to ruin him as a musician. But, it, it, you know, he was proven to be wrong about that. But that really bothered Bernstein. And in fact, when most of uh, Bernstein's early works are, and all of his great works, even the symphonies, the three symphonies that Bernstein wrote, those really all come from early in his life. And when you come back, you know, this last year, of course, there's been a great deal of Bernstein, of course, as we celebrated the 100th birthday of Leonard Bernstein. So we've seen orchestras really delve into his music. So And getting beyond sort of the, the symphonic dances from West Side Story, which we hear all the time, and getting into some of his symphonies, getting into some of his concertos, some of the other works, which has been a lot of fun. And so when I programmed this first piece, I thought I really wanted something. Obviously, I'm up for the job here. And you want to uh, to grab people's attention right away and start the concert off with a bang. And particularly with this overture to Candide that we're doing at the beginning of the program, uh, I've often said about this piece that it's the most exciting four minutes in classical music. And I, I think that there are two great openers to any concert program. And it's, it's uh, the Shostakovich Festive Overture and then the Bernstein Overture to Candide. Those are both just, they just grab you, and, and it's a wonderful ride. And if you know Candide, of course, uh, it's this kind of crazy story over decades and decades about these two people who, you know, they meet and fall in love at the beginning, and then the most unbelievable things happen to both of them, who then find themselves decades later 
uh, at the end. They find each other again decades later. But in between that is this madcap romp around these ridiculous stories and ridiculous uh, cartoonish characters. And all of that energy is captured in this little four-minute overture. And it's sort of, I think it's a kind of a love song to Europe and Viennese style so that it kind of has this this buoyant uh energy to it. But at the same time, there's sort of this America, Americana uh, energy and uh, rhythmic drive that comes in. And so much of Bernstein's music is in seven. Most music is in two marches, in three kind of waltzes, or in four. Enormous amount of music is written in four, four time. But to have things in seven is quite unusual. And Tons of Bernstein's music is written in seven. Even A Boy Like That um, from West Side Story is written in seven. And we all know that some of the uh, rhythmic interplay that Bernstein writes with. And in here, the, the main tune from the song Oh Happy We is written in seven. And it's this lyric song, though. We often think of seven as sort of being uh, rhythmic and kind of the surprise missing beat, if you will. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But here, he does that in this with this great lyricism. Uh, and it's the uh, the song is you know soon when we think we can't afford it we'll have a house and settle down uh, that's in seven and it's captured in the middle section of this short short overture and it, but with this great lyricism and singing sweetness in the violins and horns and so brilliantly orchestrated. And Bernstein wrote Candide at the same time that he was working on West Side Story. And in fact, the song everyone knows, Officer Krupke, G. Officer Krupke, that was actually cut from Candide and and interpolated into West Side Story. And as much as that sort of captures this frenetic energy of teenagers uh, in New York City, if you think about it, when I first heard that about that, I thought, oh, it, it does have this sort of madcap romp feeling of so much of Candide, for sure. So I'm thrilled to open the the concert with that piece. Tell me about the uh, Gershwin uh, that's being performed by Jeffrey Beagle. He's a pianist that's uh, familiar to our listeners. We have several of his recordings. Do you have any experience with him? Yeah, I've worked with Jeffrey uh, three or four times. He was one of the first pianists that I worked with when I was in Greensboro. My first job out of school was uh, I was hired as the assistant conductor of the Greensboro Symphony here in North Carolina. And I was there a total of eight years, uh, two years as assistant, and then I was promoted to resident conductor and did quite a few concerts there for many years. I did all their education programs, their youth orchestra, a great deal of their pops. We even went on a kind of a tour uh, with Carolina Pops Orchestra, which was for a while their pops uh, series there was was labeled under that. And I had a wonderful experience there. And I remember Jeffrey being there. I think he was playing Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. And again, I was the assistant conductor at the time, so I wasn't conducting that concert. But I met Jeffrey backstage, and uh, he said, oh, he asked my name, and, you know, Jeffrey's a wonderfully uh, personal guy. And he said, oh, so we'll do—next time we'll do something together. And I think it was maybe eight years or something until we had a chance to do that. But I've worked with him uh, with—I'm currently the music director of two orchestras, one in uh, Michigan, the Adrian Symphony, and he was there last year and played Grieg with us. And then he's been out to my orchestra in California, the Sequoia Symphony Orchestra, twice, both times with music of Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue. And so really excited to get the chance to play this concerto with him because I think that this piece, it's actually the piece that followed Rhapsody in Blue. I mentioned a little bit about Gershwin earlier and how he kind of came of age in this in the jazz age in Tin Pan Alley and was given this, you know, commission to do this piece for Paul Whiteman of the the Rhapsody in Blue and Paul actually, he didn't even know anything about it, really. There's a wonderful 
wonderful story about how Ira Gershwin and George Gershwin were playing pool in New York City one day. And Ira Gershwin read in the newspaper that Gershwin was writing, George Gershwin was writing a concerto for Paul Whiteman for a concert that was coming up in like three or four weeks. It was very, very quickly. And Ira said, hey, George, are, are you writing a concerto for Paul Whiteman? And George was like, no. And he said, well, there's a thing here in the newspaper about it. Uh, and so they called up Paul and were like, what is this thing? And he's like, oh, yeah, don't you remember? I mentioned this to you like a year ago that I wanted to do something like this. And it was announced like that other people were also writing something. I think Jerome Kern and definitely Victor Herbert, I know, was mentioned and someone else. None of those other people's music, th- that never happened. Those actually never premiered. But um, he said, well, why would you announce this without, you know, sort of checking in with me? And he said, well, there's this other guy, uh, I think it was Victor Lopez. Uh, Vincent Lopez, who was going to announce a similar program. And he said, I just felt like ours had to be announced first. So I just I did the press release about it because I didn't want to feel like we were following his story. So George, being kind of the trooper he was working in New York on Broadway and was used to working on these crazy deadlines. He was on a train back and forth to Boston where one of his shows was was trying out. And while he was on the train, he got the idea for Rhapsody in Blue. And some of that music, if you think of it, he says you could almost hear the train, the rhythm of the train going on um, in that music. The piece premiered later, and it was so it was written so quickly that the piano part wasn't even written out at that point. Gershwin is said to have improvised most of it. And if you if you know Rhapsody in Blue, it's very compartmentalized. There's like the piano does its thing. I mean, the, it actually starts with that really famous clarinet thing. Then the piano does its thing. Then the orchestra has a little interjection. Then the piano has a big Big, big cadenza, then the orchestra comes back in. It's very compartmentalized. So you can really see like, all right, you guys, we're going to play this part at this tempo. And then the piano does its thing. Then we do our thing again. So you can really see that it was kind of, it does seem to be really seat of your pants kind of feeling. Gershwin later went back and sort of wrote out the version that we know today. And there's a couple of different versions floating around because of that. However, the success was just a sensation. And they say that the concert was incredibly long. It was like three and a half hours long. It was really hot in Aeolian Hall in New York City where this was premiered. And the audience was exhausted by the time they got to Gershwin. It was the last, the Rhapsody in Blue is the last piece on the program. And uh, so, but the first thing that they hear is that clarinet. That big glissando. And supposedly the 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 entire room like electrified it. They were like, oh, well, what's this? And it just grabbed everybody's attention and was a huge sensation. And uh, Walter Damrosch, he was in the audience who was at the time the music director of what was then I think called the New York Symphony. It later merged with another orchestra to become today's New York Philharmonic. But uh, So it's one of the precursors. And he was there that day and said it was such a, a hit that uh, he went back and said, you've got to write a whole concerto now. Follow this up with a, a concerto uh, with with a whole year and a half of time to get it ready and to do all of that practice, etc. Uh, and Gershwin said yes. And there's there's an apocryph- apocryphal story that Gershwin ran out to a library to buy a book on on concertos to find out what a concerto actually was. Uh, now, more likely, you know, he, he knew what a concerto was. He attended the symphony many, many years as a kid and but he probably got a few examples of it so he could sort of model his on that. But what resulted is our program, this piece that we have, the uh, the concerto in F. And originally he had titled it the New York Concerto. 
But uh, as it got closer and closer to the premiere, he felt that he didn't want to have a program associated with it or that specific place. He wanted it to be just enjoyed as absolute music and thought that it artistically stood on its own along the lines of, of the great concerti. And uh, I think it certainly does. And again, it's it, it has this... It has all of the hallmarks of Gershwin, but you really see him mature as an artist. All those great ideas, all that youthful energy that's captured in Rhapsody in Blue, that's still there. But there's just there's a greater sense of the whole, of a, how to structure a larger piece. It's 30 minutes long, about, by the time you do all three movements. And whereas maybe Rhapsody has little whispers of these different styles and characters, here Gershwin takes the time to really develop each one and, um, I, you know, the second movement, you've, it's like you've walked into a jazz club and it's just so cool and smoke. You can, you can smell the smoke in the room when that, that trumpet solo comes in in that second movement and just unbelievable pianistic virtuosity that you hear in, in all three of the movements. And Jeffrey plays this music so very, very well and, uh, he has, you know, he's played it a lot and really lives with it. And a lot of collaborators, you know, when you work with pianists, they say, oh, I do this here. Oh, I do this here. Oh, I do this here. Jeffrey doesn't do that, particularly with this piece. He's like, we just have to play what's there. Just trust what's on the score and just do that. And and I the, the piece kind of comes to life that way. And, and Jeffrey, you know, one of the great things about Gershwin and Rachmaninoff and people of that same era is they were they're recent enough that we can hear recordings of them playing their music. Stravinsky conducting his music. Rachmaninoff recorded all his concerti with the Philadelphia Orchestra, so you can hear those people's tempos, those composers' styles, how those things came to life. And uh, so uh, Jeffries listened to Gershwin play his own pieces and play the the concerto, and I think that that's really informed Jeffries. Uh, playing of all of these and so he's a wonderful collaborator a brilliant pianist uh, a wonderful musician and and i know that the audience is really going to enjoy it and there's one more work on the program isn't there tell us about that well yeah there's, there we close the work with shostakovich fifth symphony and of course shostakovich was an artist a similar era but in a very different cultural situation grow, uh, living in moscow uh, in during Stalin's time, and of course, there's lots been written about Shostakovich and Stalin. Those two, uh, they they kind of uh, they never really agreed on anything. Stalin, it was a very difficult time to be an artist in Soviet Russia. He really felt that. Uh, I mean, Stalin saw the power of the arts. It wasn't that he was anti-art. He felt that art was probably the most powerful form of propaganda that there could be. And so there was a whole committee that he had set up to to sort of review art and. Basically, it needed to glorify the state, glorify Russian history or Russian future or the working man. And uh, the idea of absolute music, as I was talking about with Gershwin, uh, you know, Stalin felt that, that that pure music for music's sake or, and certainly any modernism was, was really the enemy of the people and encouraged sort of free thinking. And um, that was a really a bad thing at that time. So it's certainly artists of all, whether novelists, painters, sculptors, 
and musicians, certainly. It was an incredibly difficult time, and many of, of Shostakovich's friends and colleagues uh, disappeared. Uh, people were regularly arrested, uh, tried, and you know, sent to the gulag within 24 hours in some cases, and many artists of that time, we don't even know what happened to them. The records have been lost, and they, they just disappeared. They were arrested and never heard from again. And this is the, the, the situation that Shostakovich spent most of his life in, uh, as a as a composer, and it, it, he had a very successful opera premiered, uh, Lady Macbeth, uh, which was about uh, was about a prostitute, and at the time. Uh, that was a really risque topic. You know, Carmen, of course, the people say the same thing about that. It was a very risque topic. And although the the opera was initially a success and played in both in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, uh, about a year after it had premiered, there was a very famous article written, a letter to the editor, if you will, in, in Pravda, which is was unsigned, but lots of people say that it was written by Stalin himself. And it, it uh, sort of decries that particular work and Shostakovich because of the subject matter. She dies at the end. It was really quite a tragedy. And uh, that so this letter to the editor really uh, says that that was a, a work that had no artistic value. And that really changed everything for Shostakovich. He went from being a really celebrated composer to to really someone whose who's life and uh, uh, certainly uh, living and was was very much on the line after that and uh the, he was you know his music was was really pushing the limits of modernism as well uh and you, if we look at his career we see works that kind of switch back and forth from a patriotic work or at least a work that's viewed as a patriotic to one that really pushes the the envelope and at the time that all this was going on Shostakovich was preparing preparing his fourth symphony for the, its premiere, and uh, there were a lot of really uh, negative things going on right around the premiere of that, so much so that the day of the premiere of his fourth symphony, his friends told him, he said, you, you can't premiere this symphony. It's far too modern, and uh, this could really be your undoing uh, in the eyes of, of the, uh, the state here if this premieres. So they canceled the premiere on the day of the premiere of the fourth symphony, and Shostakovich, soon after that, began working on the Fifth Symphony. And this is his response. He even publicly stated that the Fifth Symphony is the response to just criticism, he said. Uh, now, lots of people have read lots of things into this. It's a very triumphant piece. There are certainly some, some heartbreaking and uh, lonely, searching moments in the, in the symphony. But it ends with this glorious triumph in D major. Uh, and lots of people say that it's so that they're reading into it, that it's uh, it's it's sarcastic at the end, that it's not real, it's fake. Uh, but certainly, it is known that it was a tremendous success at its premiere. And it is said that after after the the slow movement, which is again, as I mentioned, there are moments where you know you have seventy p- players on stage, but two people are playing several points, and it's just a solo flute and harp. And this, some of the loneliest music that just, it calls out for, for, for help and companionship. And, uh, it's, it's really heart, heart rendering music. And, uh, that then follows with this sort of cry at the beginning of the fourth movement that, that turns into this incredible triumph that closes it. And it is said at the, the premiere of it that near about halfway through the end of that fourth movement, people in the audience started standing up 
They didn't applaud or anything. They just silently started standing. And everyone who was there that night knew what was at stake for Shostakovich at the premiere of the Fifth Symphony. You know, we have to remember months earlier, the Fourth Symphony's premiere was canceled. Uh, And so people who were there that night, they knew what was at stake for him as an artist. And at the near the end of the, the symphony, people just one by one started standing in the audience. And eventually, by the time the music stopped, everyone in the audience is standing. And they... uh, the piece finishes with this huge triumph in these gorgeous D major chords and uh, breaks into thunderous applause. And there's there's encore after encore. I mean, uh, uh, Strachovkovich has to keep coming out on stage. It's said 14, 15, 16 times he keeps coming out uh, to this thunderous applause. People won't stop applauding. There's so much acclaim for this symphony and this artist where he is in his career and so much public support for him. And eventually his friends say, you need to go because this is going to basically this could turn into a riot, which would be even worse for you. Uh and so Shostakovich kind of quietly slips out after the 15th or 16th uh, time he goes back on stage for a bow as the composer. And uh, it is said that then the premiere, which happened a few weeks later in St. Petersburg or in neighboring cities, and the, 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 the critics who were there from, or not the critics, but the people from the government who were there to make sure that this piece sort of followed the rules, they went to other premieres to make sure that it wasn't a staged event. They felt that maybe this they were trying to be manipulated by the people. And eventually they agreed, okay, this is a great work. This is a work that celebrates all that is Russian. Uh, so, uh, and it, but, you know, the rest of Shostakovich's career, you see that piece, like it seems like he would write a piece that really challenged those, uh, uh, those rules. And then he would write one that, like the Seventh Symphony, it said that, you know, the Russian army played the Seventh Symphony at the Germans because it was like, it was what they were fighting for. Uh, And then back and forth again. And then, of course, the Tenth Symphony, it is said, that was the first one he wrote after Stalin died. And there's a very short but incredibly intense movement that is is a musicalization, it is said, of Stalin himself, which is just the most uh, driven, dark, frightening music that, that Shostakovich maybe ever wrote. And that's saying something because a lot of his music has an edge, certainly. Uh, uh, But there's a triumph there at the end of the 10th symphony, like I'm still here and Stalin is dead. Uh, I call that the Stalin is dead symphony. And even he wrote in S-H or S-C-H at the beginning of that for Shostakovich. He writes that into his music, like his own initials are written there uh, into it. So um, uh, he's an artist I enjoy the music of and respect a great deal. And... Most excitingly, it will end this concert with an absolute triumphant bang. Well, you've certainly given us a good foundation for appreciating the program. Apart from musical skills, I'm curious about what you feel is the single most important quality a music director of an orchestra should have. Well, I think, you know, music directors kind of have to be a little bit of everything uh, to different people. So I I think there's, there's obviously on the podium... You know, there's that uh, ability to hopefully connect with musicians and to encourage them to play their best, but also sort of see the big picture in a way that that an individual musician can't necessarily sitting at the third or fourth stand in the section of violins or the second flute player. They, you know, they're not sitting in a place where they can hear the overall picture. And so one of the conductor's jobs, I think, is to be that sort of uh, eagle vision 
bird's eye view of the whole in a way that the different players, you know, they have they have different jobs to do. And so it's a it's a division of labor in a lot of ways that uh, that the music director's job is to kind of to, to be that architect of the overall effect, but at the same time attending to lots of details. But that's the on the podium stuff. And I think that as a music director, there's a whole nother section which is, you know, beyond the baton or off the podium, those kinds of things, which I've done workshops with young conductors. I, I rarely do those where I say, pick up the baton and shake the stick at these musicians. I tend to say, well, as a music director, there's all these things you have to do in your community and and helping to be an advocate for not just for your orchestra and for your individual concerts like this one next Saturday, but uh but instead, you, being an advocate for music in general, for institutions of, of cultural significance in their community, for arts in general in this county, in this state, and in this country, like being a, an endless cheerleader for all of the things that, that separate us as, as Americans, as individuals, and as uh, people that are sensitive to artistic product. And it, it's not necessarily, even I, I often say, like, as an advocate for music education, it's not so that you turn people into musicians, professional musicians, but so that you help people to develop a sensitivity to artistic work, whatever that is. And certainly the world needs uh people who are who are able to appreciate great art and whether that's in great novels whether that's in great uh, uh, music certainly whether that's in uh, great uh, paintings or art we need people who are sensitive to artistic product and even great films you know we need people who can see films that maybe can appreciate more than maybe just a, a pop culture uh, a teeny bopper movie or something now I love that kind of stuff. I love popular culture and embrace that. But I also recognize that there's a difference maybe between a film like Roma that just came out that I just recently saw and the, the you know Fast and the Furious. I think there's value in both of those. I have a teenage son, so we enjoy watching Fast and the Furious together for sure. But I think that there's room for both those things. And even in a symphony orchestra programming, I think there's room for great fun and great uh, pop concerts, things that cross over, rock and roll even. Uh, I was just talking with a group yesterday about one of the things I love about the symphony is its versatility as a musical group. And if you add saxophones, electric bass, and drums... A symphony can really play anything, any style. You know, I've done, you know, uh, things like, you know, the Four Seasons music. Um, I've done pop and film music tons. I've done country and Western music, uh, a little bit of everything with symphonies. And I love how versatile they can be. And one of the things I love about that, and I think is the music director's job, is to sort of be uh, a musical chameleon and help to bring all kinds of variety of music, including a more serious program, maybe like what we're doing here this week, but balancing that across a season and across several seasons of programming so that your community has has a exposure to a huge variety of styles, colors, composers, uh, nationalities, uh, all those kind of genre-bending things that, that a symphony orchestra can explore. My guest has been Bruce Anthony Kiesling, and he is the next candidate in the Western Piedmont Symphony's search for a new music director. He will be leading a concert by the orchestra on February 2nd, 7.30 p.m. in P.E. Monroe Auditorium at Lenore Rhine University. And there's a link to more information about the concert 
from the Piedmont Arts Podcast page at WDAV.org. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me. It's been a pleasure. For the Piedmont Arts Podcast, I'm Frank Dominguez.